Do you have trouble loving or even liking certain people? I'm sure that if we look back over the years, we can all think of a few. Some people are easy to love and some are not. Some people always respond to us with grace and kindness and feel good. Other people don't. Today we're going to examine the relationship between God's love for us and our love for other people. Now there's also a connection in Scripture between our loving God and loving people. But I'm going to look at the side that we just celebrated, God loving us and we loving other people. We've all had the occasion where we have allowed negative responses to control, uh, uh, negative emotions to control our responses. Uh, How do we guard against the sinful emotions, they are sinful, of anger and bitterness taking over? And how do we move beyond that? How do we obey God when our feelings are so intense How do we forgive and seek reconciliation when we simply don't feel like it? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 43 to 48, Jesus said that if we only love those who love us, we're no better than pagans. We're no better than the tax collectors of that ancient time who were a despised lot Nobody liked tax collectors. I suppose that hasn't changed. But uh, tax collectors like one another. And Jesus says, you don't need God if you just like those who like you. We are to be like our Heavenly Father, kind and forgiving and gracious, because that's the way God is. In John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. See the connection? I have loved you, so you love one another. So you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Loving other people is a characteristic of being a true follower of Christ. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I believe that saying, when we don't love others, we deny the gospel. In 1 John chapter 2, 9 and 10, if we choose, because not loving people is a choice, if we choose not to love others, we are living in darkness, not in light. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of God and love one another. If we believe in the name of the Son of God, we love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps this command abides in him and he in them. And then in chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Then he goes on to say, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, if if we want to know what love looks like, I think we are familiar with the 
passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It, does, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That's the English Standard Version. The New American Standard uh, Version of, of the Bible says that uh, the word resentful means does not take into account a wrong or does not keep record of wrongs done to it. Well, today we move along in our study of Galatians. And for anyone that's counting, this is message number 15. So we have a few more to go. We're going to see how to receive the strength from the Lord to overcome our offenses, our hurts, and live in the wonderful freedom of a gracious, forgiving spirit. We will learn how to convert Christ's love for us into our love for others. We will see where that link is. So where does strength come to love other people? Because there are certain situations where, frankly, we don't have the strength to do that. Well, that comes from the Holy Spirit and from faith. The Holy Spirit and faith. In uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So don't let the flesh master you. Don't let sinful emotions master you. But through love serve one another. When we allow the flesh to dominate, and we've all done that from time to time, uh, much damage is done. Notice verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, and he's talking to the church here, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This can happen in a marriage. It can happen in a family. It can happen in the church. Verse 14 tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the first answer to the question is, where do we get the strength to love one another? It's from the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse uh, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And those desires of the flesh, those works of the flesh, are stated in 19 to 21. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The strength we need to love others, especially those who have hurt us, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The crucial link between God's love for us and our love for others is the power of the Holy Spirit. What prevents us from loving other people? the deeds of the flesh. Now, I know that some of us are thinking, for I've thought the same way on several occasions, how can I love someone who has hurt me deeply? They do not deserve my forgiveness. 
Well, the answer to the first question, how do you love them, is what we've already said, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the answer to the second statement is, do any of us deserve the love of God? Has any of us merited divine forgiveness? And we know the answer to that question. And the answer is a resounding no, we don't deserve God's forgiveness. Forgiveness has nothing to do with whether someone deserves to be forgiven. Forgiveness comes from grace, God's grace to us, and is always a gift. If we think that the other person has to somehow do something to merit forgiveness, we're not acting in grace. We have made forgiveness a a reward, not a gift. The hardest thing, I think, in life to do is to forgive other people on a consistent basis. In fact, I believe that apart from God's power, apart from the, the Holy Spirit, it is impossible, it is impossible to truly forgive other people. John Piper says the Christian life is a life, is a supernatural life. The Christian life of love is a supernatural life. It is not produced by merely human forces. And we need to let that register. Forgiveness is not produced by merely human forces. It takes resources we do not have. If we keep reminding ourselves of of God's love for us in the cross of Christ, God's mercy displayed to us in Christ, if that is a major thought every day in our minds, it will go a long, long way to enable us to forgive other people. So when we're struggling in a relationship, when we conclude rightly or wrongly that we have been offended, When we have strong emotions of resentment, by God's grace, we can move beyond that, but only by his grace. So the first part of the answer to the question, what converts the love of Christ for us into love for others? And the answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. The second link between Christ's love for us and our love for others is faith. So if you look in Galatians 5 and verse 6, we have, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Going back to the first century culture, to be circumcised or not circumcised didn't matter. It just didn't matter. The Judaizers, who were the problem in Galatians, thought it was a big deal. Paul says it's no big deal. but faith working through love, faith working through love. Now, I want us to sort of walk through the first uh, six verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You have been freed from the demands of the law, Paul is telling us here. Its curse has been removed in Christ. He told that in, us that in a previous chapter. Don't allow false teachers to take you back into the yoke of slavery where your focus is filled with law and with ceremonies and with rituals. Don't, don't go there. Don't make obedience to the law the focus of your life as a Christian. Make the grace of God. 
Make the power of the Holy Spirit the focus of your life, and then you will obey the law. But don't make obeying the law the focus of your life. In verse 2, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're looking for a ritual to do what only faith can do, if you're adding that, adding that ritual, adding some work to faith, you're really saying that the sacrifice of Christ was insufficient to save you. You are ceasing to trust Christ. Verses 3 and 4, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. We said this before, we saw this before, that if you say, I require rituals to save me, I require the law, I must obey the law, then Paul says you have to obey it fully all the time without exception. And you can't do that. Therefore, you can't be saved through the law. He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Serious stuff. You who would be justified by the law. It's either justification by faith or it's justification by the works of the law. It can't be both. It's one or the other. And justification by the law is impossible because you can't keep the law. There is no ritual, there is no ceremony. For us, it would be baptism. Baptism does not unite us to Christ. Baptism doesn't save our souls. Once we are united to Christ by faith and know the Lord, then baptism is a testimony to that union. It is not the source of the union. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The reality of righteousness, which is required for us to see God, comes through the Spirit by faith. It does not come through ceremonies by good works. And then in verse uh, 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And we will go back to that, estate, that statement Faith working through love in a few moments. Now, he mentions some warnings to be heeded in chapter 5, 7 through 10. The first warning is is verse 7 and 8. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. The persuasion to forsake faith and return to law did not come from God. And if it didn't come from God, as God is not the source of that message, what is the source? It's Satan. He is the father of lies. Behind all falsehood is the devil. Any corruption of the gospel is satanic. The second warning is in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In baking, it doesn't take a lot of yeast to cause the dough to rise. And it doesn't take much departure from the gospel to affect our personal lives and to affect and damage the whole church. 
What is the leaven in the context of Paul's writing? The leaven is probably the legalistic mentality of the Judaizers. A legalistic mentality, a rule-keeping mentality is leaven. It is destructive. Or it could be, the leaven could be self-reliance in one area of our lives, and pretty soon we are relying on self in all of our lives. In either case, Piper says, the dreadful seriousness Serious motives in the Christian life is evident. There are motives that come from depending on God, and there are motives that come from depending on self. The difference is a matter of life and death. So we look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is hopeful. In fact, he is confident that ultimately the Galatians will reject the teaching of the Judaizers and hold to the one true gospel. And he has confidence that those who are deceiving the Galatians, those who are preaching another gospel, will be judged. Many professing Christians don't want to talk about judgment and divine wrath. They will speak endlessly about God's love and mercy, great truth, great theme, but they will stay clear of wrath and judgment. But to not warn people about the judgment of God is to not love them. If you knew that a fire was erupting in a house or if you knew that a roof was about to cave in in some building and you had time to warn people, the loving thing to do is to warn them. When we eliminate all thoughts of the wrath of God and his judgment upon those who reject the gospel, we are misrepresenting the character of God. We are denying his justice. So now in 11 and 12, we have the cross versus a circumcision. In verse 11, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? It would see someone raise an objection, say, well, Paul, you taught circumcision. Now, when did Paul require circumcision? And it was back in Acts 16, and the person we're talking about is uh, Timothy. Timothy was the offspring of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And the way this is stated in Acts 16, it seems that his mother was a believer, his father was not. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, woman who was a believer, so she was a believer, but his father was a Greek, which may indicate that his father was a Gentile and not yet a believer. He was well spoken of by his brothers, this is Timothy, at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him. Okay? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised as an adult, as a believer? 
Well, Timothy would be working with Jews and Gentiles, and Paul was concerned about an effective ministry among the Jews. Was this a compromise from Paul? Did he compromise the gospel by doing this? Absolutely not. The issue is not the gospel. The issue is not salvation. The issue is service. The issue is ministry. And Paul knew that Timothy would have a greater ministry among the Jews if he was circumcised. But Paul is not changing his opinion here. He's not saying, well, I guess we better have Timothy circumcised so he's completely saved. No, have him circumcised so that this is not a barrier between him and the Jews. So Paul denies the charge. In fact, he insists that because he preached the cross, he was persecuted. He could have avoided persecution by including the necessity of circumcision in the gospel message, which is what the Judaizers would want him to do. Paul refused to do that. So he preached the cross, and that was offensive to the Judaizers. The cross is still offensive. When we preach the cross of Christ, we are saying that all grounds for boasting are removed. It is a radical indictment of our sinfulness. It is saying that man has no ability to contribute towards his salvation in any way. You must come to the cross as a sinner and receive as a free gift the grace of God in Christ. And today, when you're giving witness to people, and especially to, to religious people, maybe to church-going people. And in our culture, it is baptism and the communion, which they would emphasize. But when you say, no, neither the Lord's table nor baptism has any ability to add to your salvation or contribute to your salvation, you are a helpless sinner. They become offended by being called a sinner. But that is the gospel. The gospel is offensive to people who want to hang on to their pride, who want to hang on to their good works and to their supposed merit. Then Paul says something distasteful, perhaps shocking. It could be seen uh, in that way, certainly as, as, as shocking. I wish those who unsettle you, the Judaizers, this is verse 12 of chapter 5. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ooh. Would castrate themselves. Wow. Why does he say that? Because they'd be doing less damage to the church if they emasculated themselves. Preaching a false gospel is harming a whole lot of people. So Paul is saying, well, hurt yourself, harm yourself, but don't harm the church by adding circumcision to the gospel. So our question, what is the connection between Christ's love for us and our love for others? It is the Holy Spirit. It is faith. So we get back to this expression in verse uh, 6, faith working through love. 
How does the spirit and faith work together to produce love for others? According to the New Testament, we are saved and we grow by faith. To put it in more theological language, both salvation and sanctification are by faith. The Christian life is begun by faith. The Christian life is lived by faith. We need the Holy Spirit to begin the Christian life. We need the Holy Spirit to continue in the Christian life. One writer says, faith is the first grade of the Christian life, and it is the graduate school of the Christian life. We cannot live the Christian life without the Spirit and without faith. This may explain why some of us in the Christian life, we find the Christian life is not working well for us. We are not changing. We are not growing. And the answer is this. We are not living by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you live by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will change and you will grow. Every believer possesses the Holy Spirit, or we're not a believer. Every believer possesses faith. Now we put the two together, and the result is love. How can we become a more loving person? Have you ever asked yourself that, that question? How can I become a more loving person? Stephen and Barnabas in the, gospel of, in the book of Acts were full of the Holy Spirit, and they were full of faith. How can we be full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith? And the answer is that we must know and apply the Word of God. Galatians 3, 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? The answer is no. Or by the hearing with faith? Yes, it was by faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? And hearing through the Word of God. How is our faith increased? By hearing, assimilating, believing, and obeying the Word of God. We become loving people when we do that. We overcome negative emotions when we do that. How was the power of the Spirit released in our lives? By faith in the Word of God. We need to hear, we need to heed the truth of God. We need to read, we need to ponder the Scriptures. We need to be convicted and humble by the Word. We need to pray that the reality of divine truth will take root in our hearts. When it does, we are changed. We have new hearts and we love. So here's the answer to the question. What's the link between Christ's love for us and our love for others? The fruit of the Spirit released in our life through faith in the Word of God. It is begotten and sustained by the Word of God. And the center of divine truth is what this represents the love of Christ in dying for our sins on the cross. All the promises that we find in Scripture flow out of the work of Christ. See how Christ loved ungodly, unworthy sinners. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, love like that. So we can love the way Christ loves us by reflecting on the cross of Christ. There shouldn't be a day go by, and especially when we have these strong emotions, and I've had them and you've had them, when we are so upset with somebody, we're almost bitter toward them for what they have done. 
And we, we say, boy, I can never forgive them for what they did to me. Realize what we are saying when we do that. Does God ever say that to us? I can never forgive you. He never says that to us. We ask for forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. Because God always has a merciful heart toward us. So, we can love others the way Christ loved us by reflecting on the cross, by depending on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It is through the Spirit that God pours out his love into our hearts. And by faith in God and his truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Read your Bible every day. Do more than that. Meditate on the scriptures every day. Do more than that. Start to memorize a few verses. Start with Jesus wept. There you go. (laughs) Most of us know that. You say, well, I can't memorize. Do you know John 3.16? Sure you do. You can memorize. I can memorize. I don't memorize easily. I work and work and work at it. And I still don't do a very good job at it. Meditate on the truth of God. Focus on the love of Christ on the cross. That truth will penetrate. It will transform you. And you will become a more loving person. God's love for you will be changed, will be expressed in your love for others. His love on the cross becomes the foundation and the motivation for our love for others. I don't find any exception in Scripture whereby it says, well, you can love 90% of the people or 99% of the people, but I'll let you off the hook with that person. That's not the message of the Word of God. I know this is a challenge because I know how strong our emotions can be. And I know how our memories, at least my memory, keeps going back to the offense, back to the offense, back to the offense. And when I dwell there, I have no joy, I have no peace, I have no victory. So sometimes I cry out to God, Lord, Please change the way I'm thinking about this whole thing because history is history. What has happened has happened. I can't change that. And help me to love other people. Yes, help me to love that person who I don't feel like loving the way you have loved me. We pray that way always and continuously And we'll become loving people. Let's pray. Father, we need to heed the message. We need to hear the truth. And as I heard many, many years ago, it is not the things in the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things I do understand that trouble me. And we understand that at Calvary, you poured forth your love to us in Christ. We have many commands in Scripture to love one another as you have loved us, to forgive one another as you have forgiven us. There are no exceptions to that. We can't do it. It's impossible for us to do it. But what is impossible for us is possible 
for you to do in our lives. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.